Let's open the Scriptures then to the book of Exodus in the first place, Exodus chapter 30, a few verses, Exodus 30, starting at verse 11. This is a little bit of the background for what King Joash calls for in his day in order to raise some funds to repair the broken-down temple. So Exodus 30, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives." From here we go to the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel prophesied during the exile. The fellow who wrote the book of Chronicles lived after the exile, so he would have been familiar with Ezekiel's prophecies, and we see some of the principles that Ezekiel speaks about, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel in chapter 18. We see those principles at work in our text in Second Chronicles 24. So we're going to read verses 1 through 9 and then 21 to 32. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. And then to verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 
But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to Second Chronicles 24, where we will continue the series of sermons on the, these chapters and these kings and the Lord's work in the history of His people. We come now to King Joash, chapter 24. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses? the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priests would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. This they did day after day and collected money in abundance. 
And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And here in what follows, I'm just going to pick up the footnote. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and seek. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabite. Accounts of his sons and the many oracles against him and of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. That's as far as our text goes. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, how good are you at keeping your promises. 
We make all kinds of promises when you, for example, promise to take out the garbage or clean your room before the day is out. Do you keep that promise regularly? When you promise to meet someone at a certain time, do you always remember to do that? When you say that you'll do something for somebody, you made a commitment, have you ever failed to do that? How often do you keep your promises? Would you say 80% of the time, 90%, 100%? Will anybody say? And then there are the weighty promises that we make to God. For example, at our profession of faith, or we speak promises before God on our wedding day, or when we have a, our child baptized. How are we keeping those promises? How are we doing with that promise to crucify our old nature and forsake the world? What about the promise to love our wives just as Christ loves the church or to respect our husbands as the church respects Christ? How well are we doing? What about the promise to teach our sons and daughters to to model for them the Christian way, to explain to them the, the covenant of the Lord, his, his great salvation in Jesus Christ, as well as His commands for us to follow. Do we keep that promise? Is there, any, even, is there even a single one of these promises that any of us can say, I've kept it in its entirety, I've kept it 100%, I have kept this promise perfectly. Well, I think to ask that question already tells us the answer, doesn't it? It's a humbling thing to admit that we fail, that we are promise breakers, that we are people who have a hard time keeping our commitment, and we can never keep it perfectly. We fit right in, when you come to think of it, to this whole line of the kings of, of Judah, don't we? We've seen this over and again. The kings vacillate, we vacillate. The kings go up and down, we go up and down. We try to serve the Lord, we come up short like they so often did. When it comes right down to it, we're all like a bunch of yo-yos, up and down in our commitment. Well, thanks be to God then that though you and I fall short repeatedly, the Lord our God never does. That'll be our theme this afternoon. The Lord keeps His covenant. Simple, profound, the Lord keeps His covenant. Bountiful grace will be our first point, and patient discipline the second. Well, we pick up the story of the boy king Joash, when the Lord, as we saw last time, had rescued the line of David from near extinction. He restored the seven-year-old offspring of David to the throne. And then chapter 24, it, it begins with an overview of the king's service in those opening three verses. And we notice three things are said there. Joash reigned for 40 years. Secondly, Joash did right in the eyes of the Lord. And then there's a qualifier all the days of Jehoiada the priest. 
And the third thing, the Lord gave to Joash sons and daughters. Now, these are not just random facts, just happen to be laid out there, not just the product of an ordinary life, but rather each of these is a gift of grace from God as He promised these gifts. Let's just go through them a moment. Take the 40-year reign. That's a long time to be king. If you go through the, the history of all the kings, there's not that many that got to 40 years. Joash's father, Ahaziah, only one year. Remember, he was a wicked king. Grandfather Jehoram, also a wicked king, eight years. In God's covenant with His people, He, he promised a long reign for those kings who kept the Lord's commandments. That's in Deuteronomy 17. David reigned 40 years. Solomon reigned 40 years. And now Joash reigned for 40 years. And lest we get on the wrong track, we should understand that the, the gift of a long reign was not something that each of those men deserved. It's not something they earned as if God owed it to them to give them a long reign because they were obedient. That's not how God's covenant gifts work. When God blesses with covenant gifts, it's always His free choice to bestow them. He promises blessings to encourage and to stimulate and give extra incentive to us to go about our duties. Just like when a father, maybe some of you did this recently, father or mother asks their children to do a bunch of chores around the house, you know, your Saturday chores, some cleaning, some vacuuming, some straightening up, some whatever, and then dad might say on a given Saturday, when all the chores are done, we're all going to go out for supper. I'm going to take the family out for supper. That doesn't happen every Saturday. It's a bonus, right? It's understood that way. Chores they need doing every week again, some by the parents, some by the children. These are just obligations. It's part of living under the same roof part of being cared for by our parents, part of learning how to live in this life. Children are given chores, and the children have no right to say to the parents on, on any particular Saturday, hey, you owe us a meal out, Dad, Mom. We did our chores. You owe us. That would be ridiculous, right? The kids know that. The parents know that. No, the dinner out, that is a free gift. That's offered by one of the parents as a gesture of generosity. Well, that's how it is with all of God's covenant gifts. All the things that He says He will do for us in the covenant, these are generous bonuses. They're not earned, but rather freely given out of love to encourage us and incentivize us in our service. So, 40 years, that's a gift of grace. Second gift to Joash is the mentor he received, Jehoiada. Remember that Joash has no father. His mother, Zibiah, is mentioned here. She may well be alive, but she might also be out of the picture because she for sure was not involved with him for the first six years of his life because he lived in secret in the temple. And when you think about Joash's 
family of origin is pretty messed up, isn't it? His father was a wicked murderer. His grandmother, Athaliah, was also a wicked murderer. She murdered her own grandkids. Joash, on the one side, is a descendant of David, a man after God's own heart, but there's a lot of Ahab in the family tree, isn't there? There's a lot of Ahab and Jezebel's influence in his life and in his world. He had uncles and cousins over on Ahab's side, or he did until they were dead, killed by Jehu. What chance did this Joash have to grow up in faithfulness to Yahweh with a grandmother like Athaliah? And a father who was also wicked. Well, that's where this Jehoiada comes into the picture. Good old 100-year-old priest provided by the Lord to mentor this boy, to shepherd him, to basically father Joash in the ways of the Lord. And as long as Jehoiada lived, we are told, Joash remained faithful to God. That's the, the tremendous value of a, of a good father, a good mentor. And then there's the third blessing mentioned, Joash's sons and daughters. We might trip over the fact that Jehoiada got two wives for Joash when we know full well that at creation God created man and woman, only one man and one woman to be married. Well, the truth is after the fall into sin, a great many things went crooked in this world. And during the Old Testament period, we see that, that God tolerated certain deviances for a time, like polygamy or bigamy, having more than one wife, like slavery, like divorce. Remember in the laws of Moses, He allowed a certain measure of divorce, but when the Lord Jesus came, it was tightened. It was a, a direction to go back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. So there was a, a correction after Christ came, but at this time in history, a king to have more than one wife was pretty normal for the, for the culture. And in fact, Jehoiada shows great restraint only getting two wives for the king. But now the bigger point of verse 3 is that the Lord blesses Joash with children. Remember the situation. There were no children in David's family. All the kids of Joash's generation had been murdered. All the kids of the generation above descendants of David had been slaughtered. So here was the Lord in His faithfulness to His covenant with David, now repopulating the line of David with a view to the coming Messiah. He was paving the way for the Messiah. That's grace. Grace upon grace. And then there is Joash's dedication to the house of the Lord. Verse 4 says that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. A more accurate translation would read, Joash, it was in the heart of Joash. Mention his heart. It was in the heart of Joash to restore the house of the Lord. That expression should ring a couple of bells because David is said to have had it in his heart to build the house of the Lord 
in the first place. And that was commended by God that David had that desire. The job fell to Solomon, but David's desire was a good one. Well, here we've got great-grandson Joash following in the footsteps of grandfather David. He has it in his heart. It's the passion of his heart to restore the temple, the house of God. That's his top priority as king. A beautiful thing in that time, but brothers and sisters, not just for that time. Is it the passion of your heart? Is the house of the Lord the passion of your heart and mine? Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, we, we don't have a house of the Lord like Joash did. There's no temple in Jerusalem anymore that is a particular building where God dwells. There's no physical house of the Lord that, that fell away at the time of Jesus' coming, at the, the tearing of the curtain upon His death, and that's true. But the Lord still does have a temple on earth. He still has His house here below. Paul says to the Corinthian church, do you not know, speaking to the congregation, do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in you. Or think of Peter's words, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a spiritual house congregation, God's house. So the passion that Joash has and David before him, that still has to be our passion, passion to build up the house, the church. And you see this, by the way, in every faithful king of Judah, they, they always dedicate themselves in some way to maintain and build up the service of the Lord. Asa sent out teachers to teach the Israelites the way of the Lord. Jehoshaphat did something similar. Hezekiah will open up and rebuild the temple as well. And think of how the Lord Jesus was so passionate in His earthly ministry for the service of the Lord too. That was His whole thing, right? He came here to, to serve His Father, and He did it for His bride, the church. He was always concerned with the bride. And is the Spirit of Christ not living in us as individuals and collectively so that we should be passionate, we should be dedicated servants who love God and His church, doing whatever we can to maintain and build up the service of the Lord here among His people. That ought to be our passion too, right? What does that passion look like? Well, certainly, as it mentions here in this 24th chapter, it includes each of us giving financially of our blessings to help keep a roof over our heads and the lights on every Sunday and through the week so that we can worship and have catechism and do so many other things in the building. Certainly, we all should be passionate to see that the church is financially well-supported in the ministry of the gospel. But that's just the starting point, isn't it? We are the spiritual house of God, we the people. 
We are the spiritual stones called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, to give our hearts to God and to one another. That's got to also be part of church building. We give our talents, we give our abilities, we give our time for service in church and kingdom to help one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another in physical and spiritual ways as needed. We also spread the gospel so that others can be brought in and the church can be added to and built up as well as preserved. To care for one another in, in, in all these ways, to do that in good days and bad, to, to pray with one another, to pray for one another, to together help each other find our peace and joy. Knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ purchased that peace and joy for us, each of us should be zealous in, in these and many like ways. Zealous for the house of the Lord. Are you praying for that? Are you active in Ancaster Church? Or if you're not a member here, are you active in your own congregation? Are you switched on and plugged in? And if not, where's the passion? Pray for that passion. Joash actually surpasses his mentor. Did you notice that? Joash actually outdoes Jehoiada the priest in zeal. Even though Jehoiada had been high priest for a long period of time, all through Joash's younger years, though he was in charge of the temple and on his own authority could have issued that mosaic tax and could have started the work of restoration, could have at least brought it to the king's attention, he never did. And when Joash issues a command for the Levites to go and gather the necessary funds from the people in order to undertake the repair work, we read in verse 5, but the Levites did not act quickly. Joash had said, do this and do it fast. And the, the Levites just dragged their heels. Well, who's in charge of the Levites? That's Jehoiada. Jehoiada is dragging his feet. Why? We don't know. We're not told why. But here we, we see that even the best of men have their weaknesses and shortcomings. Jehoiada was certainly faithful overall, but here was one of those times where he wasn't keeping his own commitments. And King Joash even has to reprimand him. But Jehoiada, filled with the Spirit of God, responds well to the reprimand. Did you notice that too? You know, reprimand or rebuke a wise person and he grows in wisdom. He doesn't get defensive and lash out. That's what Jehoiada does. He, he actually responds with humility. He accepts the rebuke. He changes his behavior. He orders the Levites to do the work. They make a chest now. They don't go out to gather the tax, but they make a chest and have people bring it in. And he sets the workers to the repair. From verses 8 through 14 of our text, you find king and priest and their officials always mentioned in tandem. They basically become partners, Joash and Jehoiada, or their representatives. 
They organize, they establish the, the funds coming in, they receive the funds, they count the funds, they organize the workers, they explain to the workers what needs doing, and they see to it that the temple is restored. They do it together. There's no competition here between priest and king, between these powerful figures in the kingdom. No one clamoring for the credit or the glory. Instead, we see humble dedication by both authorities to the same cause, namely stimulating the people of God to faithfully serve and worship their covenant God. King and priest are in sync. Beautiful. And the Lord blesses this. This is His ongoing grace, His bountiful grace over this part of Joash's reign. Once a collection chest was prepared for gathering in the funds, we read in verse 10, and all the princes, notice that word all, and all the people rejoiced and they brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. Just slow that down a minute, okay? The people were happy to give. They were rejoicing for the opportunity to give for the service of the Lord, for the repair of the temple. They were cheerful givers. And they kept giving until they had more money than they knew what to do with. The temple was faithfully repaired by all the various workers. They even had money left over to make new utensils for the inside service of the sacrifices and so on. This is how it went. This whole picture is like a, a repeat of how it was when the tabernacle was first set up in the days of Moses. People brought their money. You can read about it in, in Exodus. They brought their money, and they brought their money, and they brought their money until Moses had to say, don't bring any more money. We've got more than we need. David had the same in his day, preparing for the temple that Solomon would build, build all kinds of silver, all kinds of gold, all kinds of metal poured in, and David himself gave abundantly. How can that be, brothers and sisters, that this comes about, that all the leaders and all the people were of the same mind, that they all willingly gave of their money with joy in their hearts? How can that be unless the Spirit of Christ is in them? unless the abundant grace of God is upon the people, the unity they have, the workers doing their work, the people bringing the money, the work being blessed and getting done in time, on time, under budget, you could say. All of this is blessing. All of this is grace from above. Let us pray for that grace to be in each one of us and upon us all together so that we too are of one mind in our devotion to the house of the Lord, the, the church of God. We need to pray for that because as, as beautiful as the first half of chapter 24 is, there's a second half of this chapter. As faithful as God is to His covenant promises, how abundant His grace for faithfulness. The people, and we're like those people, are so fickle. Our faithfulness often falters, and so we need also the Lord's patient discipline. This is how the covenant relationship works. 
When we follow God's commandments faithfully, we can expect His undeserved blessings to follow. When your dad says, after the chores are done, we're going to go out for supper, then you work through the day and you're expecting to go out for supper. Again, not as a deserved thing, but as a treat. And this is a repeated theme all throughout Chronicles, and it remains true today. God blesses faithful living. I hasten to add that it is also true that sometimes God brings His people through trials, even though they're living faithfully. That's the tricky part for us, because we don't always know why God is sending this hardship or that hardship. We see that in the life of Job, the life of Joseph, the life of Jesus, the life of Paul. But overall, the pattern remains God graciously rewards heartfelt obedience, just as the first half of our text shows. But then the other side is equally true. God punishes disobedience. And this sad history of Joash shows a person can be faithful for a long time. A person can be zealous for the service of the Lord for a chunk of his life but then turn away in the latter part of his life and suffer the consequences. There's a tragedy unfolding in chapter 24. Notice where Joash's downfall begins in verse 17. The tragedy begins after his mentor dies. We notice that Jehoiada dies at a ripe old age, 130. You don't find 130-year-old men in this time period of the Bible. You have to go back to the days of the patriarchs. Jacob was 147. But even after that, 130 stands out. You know, you had Moses at 120. You had Joshua at 110. So Jehoiada at 130, that's the Lord's special grace upon him. But then we read in verse 17 that after Jehoiada was gone, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served the Asherim and their idols. Grandmother and mother served Baal. Now we've got the son and the grandson serving a different false god, the Asherim. And how did Joash's heart turn? It was the influencers. Remember we talked about those people in our lives a couple of sermons ago? Choose your influencers carefully. Who's got, whose ear do you have? And whose ear are you listening to? Whose mouth are you listening to? Jehoiada had been the number one influence on Joash. He'd been a faithful father to him for so many years. And under his godly influence, Joash remained zealous for the Lord. But when he was gone and other men came in to guide him, ungodly men, the heart of Joash showed its true colors. And he abandoned God. It's one of the saddest stories among the kings, isn't it? That's how 
sickeningly serious the sin of Joash is. It wasn't a temporary weakness or, or sin or rebellious act like, for example, King David or some of the other kings. We saw that. That would have been bad enough. But look at verse 18. They abandoned, so that's the princes plus the king. They abandoned the house of the Lord. The very thing that had previously been Joash's passion, and it was a good passion, he abandons it. To abandon the house of the Lord is to abandon the Lord. And they chased after the idols. Suddenly he turns his back and he wants nothing to do with the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? And yet these things happen. Also today, I have known men who have served as elders. I have known men who have served as, uh, as deacons who turned away completely after a time and just joined the world. And when you think back to the way they were serving, you can't even understand how they went from apparently faithful service to this godlessness. I know two pastors who have done the same thing. They could preach to others, but they never took the gospel into their own heart. We can't really understand that, can we? It's so sad. It is so tragic. It's the parable of the sower coming to life here. The seed that fell among the thorns, you remember that? The, the seed that grew up for a while, looked like faith for a while, but eventually gets choked out by some care of the world. For a while it looks like faith. It talks like faith. And yet, after a time, the faith, the seed gets choked out. So here's a hard question for you this afternoon and for me. Is your faith, is my faith the real deal? Am I fooling myself? Are you fooling yourself? I claim to be a Christian. You claim to be a Christian. Are we the real deal? Is our commitment to the Lord from the heart sincere, active, and is it permanent? We read from Ezekiel 18 that God will deal with us according to our deeds. Why does the Lord mention deeds? Well, deeds are always the result of what's living in the heart, whether, by, whether faith is there or unbelief. If a wicked person turns from his wicked ways, says the Lord, if that person repents, in other words, and obeys the Lord, he shall live. His heart has been changed like that of the prodigal son. But conversely, if a righteous person I put it between quotation marks. A righteous person turns from his righteous ways and becomes disobedient and wicked like Joash did, then he will not live. The Lord will instead follow through with His other covenant promise to punish, to curse, to wipe out the rebellious. 
do you and I take that warning to heart? That's part of the covenant. The prophet says it in verse 18 of our text, because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. That still applies today. Apparently, Joash had been going through the motions for 30-plus years, even doing a lot of good along the way under Jehoiada's influence, but also, apparently, it was never out of true love for God. So then I ask you this, do you love God? Would you die for Jesus as He died for you? Will you live for Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That's how you make sure that your faith is the real deal. You hate sin. You repent of sin. You trust in Christ. And you pursue righteous deeds out of love for your God. That's the evidence that it's real. Joshua and the officials, they betray the Lord's covenant. And yet notice how the Lord responds. He's patient with them. Verse 19, He sends prophets to them and to the people to bring them back to the Lord. This is also our covenant God. This is how He deals with us. God had every right to punish Joash right then and there, considering everything that the Lord had done for Joash through Jehoiada. He should have put Joash to death immediately, and yet the Lord is gracious. He wants him to repent, like we read in Ezekiel 18. He calls him back. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's always calling them back. We'll sing it from Psalm 103. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he calls his people, his rebellious, stubborn people, come back. And when the voices of these several prophets go unheeded, the Lord raises up another prophet closer to home now. You could say he ups the ante. Who's this prophet? Well, it's the son of that beloved Jehoiada, whose name is Zechariah, the priest. Now just, just think about this for a moment, how personal this is for Joash. Zechariah is the son of the man who basically saved, humanly speaking, saved Joash. Who together with his wife risked their lives to hide him from Athaliah in the temple for six years. That's Jehoiada's son. Zechariah actually was more. He was a full cousin of Joash since Joash's mother, Jehoshabeath, was Joash's, or rather, Zechariah's mother, was Joash's aunt. So Jehoshabeth was Joash's aunt, and that was Zechariah's mother. 
Zechariah and Joash, they were contemporaries. They, they would have been peers. They, they must have grown up together in and around the temple. They were cousins. They were friends. They were brothers because Jehoiada was their father, one physically, the other in the faith. This Zechariah was close, as close as you could have it to someone who, who, who loved Joash, like Jehoiada loved Joash, speaking to him in the spirit of his father even. But what does King Joash do when Zechariah issues that warning? Verse 21, but they, that's king and princes, they conspired against Zechariah, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Think about that. They stoned a priest in the court of the temple in the very place where Jehoiada had previously protected Joash and had even brought him forth surrounded by all those soldiers to put him on the throne. What brutal irony. Joash murdered the son of his own father, Jehoiada. Can you see in Zechariah your Savior, the Lord Jesus, a foreshadowing of what He would do? The Jews of Jesus' time murdered their own righteous brother, Jesus of Nazareth. He was son of their father in heaven, they murdered him all because Jesus, like Zechariah, had called them to repentance and faith. They put him to death. The rebellion of Joash, it's, it's horrendous. It's full throttled. He doesn't stop. He doesn't repent. He has abandoned his covenant promises, and yet the Lord remembers the covenant. The very name of the murdered priest says it all, Zechariah. That name means Yahweh remembers. King Joash forgot, but Yahweh remembers. He remembers everything about the covenant. Joash forgot the care of the Lord over him through Jehoiada. He forgot the covenant altogether, but the Lord keeps his covenant always, first in punishing the wicked rebels. Very soon the leaders of Judah who led Joash into sin, we read that they are killed by the invading Syrian army. And the chronicler gives the reason for that. Verse 24, though the army of the Syrians had come with a few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army. That's a covenant curse. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 28. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Syria wins because the Lord is punishing king and princes and people for their rebellion. Joash himself is very soon put to death. And notice that while earlier Jehoiada the priest had received a king's burial, unique in all the history of the kings, he was put into a, the tombs of the kings as a reward for his faithfulness, Joash the king is left out of the tombs of the kings because of his rebellion. 
All of these are pointers and markers. And we need to be really clear about this. The Lord keeps His covenant. Covenant breakers who do not return to Him in repentance, they will suffer God's wrath and judgment in the end. Let us take that to heart, each of us, for ourselves personally. It's so easy to think about others. Think about yourself now. Don't, don't fool yourself. And let's also be assured that no one gets away with any injustice in the end. Sometimes we have people who do wicked things or hard things, and they seem to just get away with it. And they seem to live a charmed life, and everything seems to go well. Do not worry about such people. God's judgment will catch up to them. But on the other hand, those who keep the covenant, those who act faithfully like Jehoiada, they will receive the rewards God talks about. They will receive the blessings God talks about, all because He's gracious toward us. And even more important than all of that, God Himself will keep His unconditional covenant promise. Remember, we've talked about that before too. There's these conditional promises, but there's also this unconditional promise. What is that? To preserve a people for Himself, a people that He will rule by the true Son of David. Notice how jo Joash's story ends, the last verse of the chapter. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Despite the rebellion of Joash and Judah, the Lord puts a son of David on the throne. That's a lamp burning for the house of David. That boy, Amaziah, is a link to the Messiah. And he's on the throne because of God's unconditional promise. You see in that, brothers and sisters, that mercy triumphs over judgment. The house of David didn't deserve to go on. Judah didn't deserve to go on as God's people. And yet the Lord allows them to go on, and He's going to keep a people for Himself. And ever since that lamp in David's house it has become the light of the world at the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the great son of David sitting, sitting now on David's throne in heaven, ruling the world as king, head over his church. That king even came back from the dead in order to give life to his people and to give it abundantly. So brothers and sisters, give your loyalty give your heart give your everything to your covenant God not just in show give him your all he's loving he's compassionate he's generous he's gracious without measure and he's faithful without flaw Return to Him, and He will return to you. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and you will find Him. Amen.